kind of tying into VBS. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 1, because what is VBS without a Genesis chapter 1 sermon, right? Got to have Genesis chapter 1, especially in a space theme, which is what we're going through this week. It's a space theme, as you can see from our... Because um, they use these in the space station, right? These, these guys right here. They haven't gone flat touchscreen yet. They're still using these. Uh, so we are, we are obviously designing for the space theme, and it's going to be a lot of fun. We're hoping to teach something about God's character to the kids. But this morning, I want to kick off by talking about God's myth. God's myth. Now, the word myth means a story of origins. Where did something begin? Where did it start? And I think what's important about that question is that it leads to some other questions. It leads to the big questions that maybe you never ask out loud, but always go through your mind. Those questions like, who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What's the purpose of all of this? What's right and what's wrong, and who gets to, to decide between the two? Those are important questions, and they begin at the ground floor, asking the question of where do we come from? And you know, we, we have a lot of hand-wringing these days about uh, teenagers who you know, go through college and maybe leave the church for a few years, um, or the rise of, they call it the rise of the nuns, that is people, not nuns and habits, but nuns as in people who, who have no religious affiliation and I think what's going on there as we're trying to figure out what's happening in American culture, what's happening is that there is a myth that is going out that people are believing in. And it's answering those big questions for them. Where we are, uh, who we belong to, where we're going, where we're from, what's right and wrong. And those questions are being answered by a different myth. And those questions are being, being answered without God. And obviously then without the church. Because why would you ever put up with the church if you don't believe in God? Right? Come on, guys. Right? Yes. Good. So, um, I want to start here. Our origin story begins in Genesis chapter 1, so please find your Bible. If you don't, grab um, one from the pew in front of you, pull out your phone, um, tablet, whatever. We begin with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of of the waters. What's fascinating to me about this line, this opening line, is what it doesn't say. Because what it doesn't give me is um, an explanation of God's pre-existence. And it doesn't give me an explanation of creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. It simply gives me this picture that God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, we're going to talk about that now. But it opens with this scene of God hovering, and the word hovers like literally like you would think of a dove hovering over something. How God is hovering over the surface of the deep. This word deep in your Bibles means a great watery abyss. Often it's translated as an ocean. God is hovering over this great, silent, still, dead ocean. And that's a weird place to begin the story, isn't it? And maybe you've never even thought about it. Maybe you've just gone over it. But um, if you lived, you know, 4,000 or so years ago when the story was first being told, this would be a very familiar story to you. It would be related to the ancient myths of the people who are around you. Going to our first point um, in your notes, if you have them, 
you grabbed a bulletin on the back, some sermon notes there. 4,000 years or so ago, a very similar tale was told. And here's a little chunk of it. It comes from a, a book, well, it's not a book, it's tablets, called Enuma Elish, written around the same time. And it says this, When the skies above were not yet named, nor the earth below pronounced by name Apsu, the first one, their begetter, and maker Tiamat, who bore them all, had mixed their waters together, but had not formed pastures, nor discovered reed beds, when yet no gods were manifest, nor names pronounced, nor destinies decreed, then gods were born to them. And so this story, it goes on, we won't read all of it, but this story is, is coming out of Babylon, is coming out of Chaldea, which if you remember right, Abraham was out of where? Good, right? Because I gave that to you guys. You should have all been on top of that. VBS isn't hard, you just have to pay attention, Okay. Out of Ur, the Chaldeans. And this is the myth of the people that Abraham is coming out of. This is when they said the story, asked the question of where did this all begin? Some pr- preacher stood up at, at a podium and said, Well, there was Apsu, fresh water, and Tiamat, the goddess of salt water, the sea. And they mixed their waters together, and that was what there was. Which sounds awfully familiar to a book that we just read from, doesn't it? Only slightly different here because the story goes that Tiamat and Apsu, they mix their waters together and they give birth to the gods. And the gods grow up and they, they become rowdy teenagers, drinking, carousing, making a bunch of noise. And what do you do, parents? I'm not in teenager land yet. I haven't faced that nightmare. Some of you are there. But what do we do when our teenagers are rowdy and carousing and causing mischief? What, what was that? Emma, immediately on top of it. Pray. <laughs> well, Absu decided to do something different than pray. I guess he was the high god, so he, who's he going to pray to? Uh, he decides I'll kill him and start over again, which is not my recommendation for you this morning, just so you know, okay? He says, I'm going to kill these guys. And so he goes to war. Absu, the high god, against all of these younger gods. But Absu's an old dude, you know? He hasn't got the the zip anymore, and he loses, and he dies. And this enrages Tiamat. And she becomes, have you ever seen, anybody ever seen the ocean in a storm? You've got, or maybe in the movies, or maybe in person, it's this roiling, raging, chaotic, boiling uh, uh, blackness. And this is the way Tiamat describes. She's just enraged that the Absu is dead. And so she, this watery, chaotic, water dragon thing, comes after the gods. And Marduk, who's pictured like Conan, right, strong and, you know, muscly and, and vibrant and just r- this, this warrior ready to go to war. And, and, and Marduk takes the, the winds and he blows them down Tiamat's throat and he takes his bow and he shoots an arrow right down Tiamat's throat and it breaks her in half, just slays her and breaks her in half. And then Marduk does something with the body. He takes half the body and he makes the heavens and he takes half the other body of water, and he makes the earth. Very interesting. Very interesting. And so what we see when we uh, read this opening verse here, that the Spirit of God is hovering over this, this lifeless, dead, still, watery mass, though may not stand out as familiar to us, it would to the ancient world. That's how the world began. It was water. But then something very significant happens, especially in day two. So look in your Bibles on day two. We'll get back to day one in a second. But look at day two. 
And day two, God said, uh, verse 6, Genesis 1, 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and he separated the waters uh, that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, or sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Which is very interesting because we have here then a picture of the almost a very similar picture. But instead of this chaotic war between, you know, petty gods and splitting bodies in half, God simply speaks a word and space is made between waters and we have the world created. Therefore, this sets itself up as a myth that is in direct contradiction, direct opposition. It is versus the myth of the ancient world, where life, God, the only God, brings life out of the void. He brings order out of chaos. The Bible is creating a new story within the ancient world to call people to worship and to remember God, their creator. We have the same thing happen on a different level in verse 2. Look at verse, I'm sorry, verse 3 in the first day. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and he called the darkness night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, everyone except for my Sunday school class, which is now Paul's Sunday school class, I want to ask you a question. What's missing here? Jack knows, but he's an elder, so he's supposed to, right? The sun, right? There is no source of light here. God simply says, I'm going to make light, and I'm going to make darkness, and I'm going to separate them, and I'm called day and night. But he doesn't make a sun. He doesn't make a moon. He doesn't make a stars. In fact, God doesn't even get around to that until the fourth day, which seems very disordered to me. If I was creating the world, we would be in trouble. But If I was creating the world, I would think of doing it in a more orderly fashion where I would create a sun because the sun is the source of life, right? It brings light, it brings warmth, it brings photosynthesis, all these sorts. God's making plants before he makes a sun. That just doesn't, that's weird. That's a bizarre thing to do, a bizarre way to go about it. But if you were in Egypt and your high God was what? The sun. And if you were in Greece and Rome in the time of Jesus, and you thought the gods were the stars in the sky, because that's where they located. The gods were beyond the stars, and the stars were representative of them. How many of you can point out Orion's belt? I can't point out anything else, but I can find Orion's belt. That is a story, right? That is the belt of the god Orion. He has been placed in the stars. And yet, what we see here is that God makes light, and he doesn't need the sun, and he doesn't need the moon, and he doesn't need the stars. God can make light from nothing at all. Just say it's there, and it's there. He doesn't need your false, fake gods. And you need to place your faith in this God who makes light out of nothing. Now John goes on to explain later on, much later on, that this light of the world is in fact Jesus himself. As Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But uh, that's for another day. Notice that finally when God does get around to making stars on the fourth day, verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. In fact, he doesn't, he doesn't even, so God is saying, I guess uh, we need to mark time. So I'll make a sun and I'll make a moon and I'll make a stars. 
So we can mark time and seasons. You need to have seasons. It can't be summer all the time. I don't care how much you want it to be. Got to have winter, right? We need seasons. And so God makes these celestial bodies. Are they gods then? No, they're nothing but a piece of the puzzle of creation that God has placed so that you can tell time. Verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 16. God made two great lights then. The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Notice that little, it's like a footnote. Like you've got this explanation of why we need a great light and why we need a small light. And then sort of as an afterthought, well, we have the stars as well. Which doesn't sound scandalous to us. It doesn't sound like something that would be fighting words to us. But that's because we don't think stars are gods. They did. This was a hymn of rebellion against all of the other nations around them who told stories that the gods are there and the gods of watery chaos made the world. And yet here we see the gods are not gods at all. They're simply part of the created order that God stepped in over this nothingness and out of this nothingness he created everything that you see and hear. And so this is a story, a myth that is in competition with the myth of the ancient world. Genesis 1 doesn't just strike against the gods that we've talked about so far, but they also strike against the half-beings, the half-gods. You'll notice, or remember with me, that the ancient people also worshipped half-god beings. You remember the Philistines worshipped Dagon. And Dagon was half-man and half-fish. Read First Samuel chapter 5, verses 1-5, through 5, and you'll see that story play out. Um, no one worships centaurs, but mermen are lame. So I, I just said centaurs because I couldn't bring myself to put mermen up there. Um, too much little mermaid. That's the curse of the little daughter. You know, I just can't handle that anymore. So what we do have, though, is we have this worship of creation. People are worshiping uh, these half-create, this half-man, half creature things. You know about people worshiping trees. You know about the sort of pantheistic vision of the world that God's in a little bit of everything. He's in the trees and in the soil. We hear this word mother earth, right? We've heard this before. That people for centuries and millennia worshiped the ground. They worshiped these these created things. And yet, what do we read? We read that God said, let earth, the earth sprout vegetation. God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let the birds fly in the air. That God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind, livestock and creeping things, all those things that you don't like in your house. That God is the source of all of these things and that we are tenders of this garden of goodness that he has made. And that gets us to a really great point. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And what's interesting in, in, in opposition to the ancient peoples is that as if we were to continue on in that Tiamat Apsu story, they create humans, but they create humans to be the slaves of the gods because the gods like to drink, and they like to party, and they like to eat. And if you're going to drink and party and eat, you need what? It's not hard. You need food and wine, right? I mean, you need the stuff to do it. Well, gods are busy, right? I mean, they're busy people. 
And so you need somebody else to bring that to you. And so you make slaves. And so they created humankind to be slaves and to go up to the altars and to place food and wine on the altars and the gods would come down and they would take it with them so that they could party and have a good time. That was the story of the ancient world. The purpose of humanity was to be the slaves of the gods. How interesting it is then to open up these verses and to see how did God make man in his own image. And what did he do to them once he had made male and female? He blessed them. He didn't say, now go make me a sandwich. He said, go be fruitful and multiply, which is our church way of saying, have a very healthy marriage. Right? Some of you didn't catch that. You will later. It's okay. Have a healthy marriage. Have lots of kids. Enjoy the world. Go and fish and have, you know, have dominion over these things. He says, I give you every green thing to eat so that you can have food. I have made this garden. Now I am sending you out to enjoy it. Yesterday, um, we took Emery to the park so she could ride her bike. And at one point, she's you know, running around, sliding on the slides and walking on the... Thank you. That balance bar, and uh, she comes up to me and, and grabs my hand and says, take me for a walk in the woods. So I have a, four year, a five-year-old, not a five-year-old, holding my hand, and we're just walking through the trails of the woods, and that was the highlight of my day. A dad who gets to enjoy good creation with his daughter. And this, to me, is the absolute image of what God has designed for us. He has designed for us to be connected to one another. He's designed for us to be in relationship with our children and with our families and with our friends and with our enemies. And he's designed us to touch the world that he has made, to touch the creation that he has created, to enjoy it, to be full of it. And this is good news to you, those of you who hear the word father and you associate that with bad childhood memories. It's good news to you, to those of you who feel like a disappointment, who feel like a failure, who feel like you are unlovable, who feel like you are alone, to hear this word coming forth that God so loved the world, and you are an integral, designed part of that world. Your origin story, your myth is that God has created you, and he has created you for the purpose of this, to enjoy what he has made. That is a a good news story, isn't it? A story that could transform everything about the way that we live our lives. And that's what it was doing to these ancient people. That's what it was doing to these Jews as they sat around and they told this story. That's what it did for Jesus as he sat through VBS and people told this story to him again and again and again and again. And my message to you, at least in part this morning, is tell this story. Again and again and again and again. Fill your children's mind with it. If you don't have children or your children have moved on, fill your own mind with it because what we say about where we come from matters. It shapes us. It changes everything about the rest of the big questions. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? And how do we live life on the way? Those questions are answered with this very beginning verse In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And everything that comes out of it is just pure joy. Plants and animals. Emery was pointing at birds as they go by. Just enjoy it. This is a competition, a competing myth. But 
we are no longer those people, are we? We don't worship centaurs, and we don't believe in Tiamats. But we do have our own myths. And as I began thinking about if, if Genesis 1 functioned as a song of resistance, as a, as, a, as a story that shaped people in a meaningful way back then, might it not do the same thing for us today as well? But what are our stories? And I realize then this gets kind of tricky. Because we don't have centaurs and worship Tiamats, and we don't locate the gods and the stars anymore, we say, well, they're just burning balls of gas out there. They have no meaning. They're just sort of circling around and doing their thing. We don't have those. Ideas have replaced idols. We have ideas, worldviews, notions, and we have pulled the supernatural and set it aside from them. And now we have worldviews that have no need of God whatsoever. We have a machine, but we have no idea where it came from. We have no idea where it's going. We have no idea what its purpose is. This is our new and modern myth. And so I'm going to toss out a few ideas that I have as I was thinking about it, gods that we have today and how the Bible might resist those stories. And I'm going to associate them, if you've got sermon notes with you today, with Star Trek, because all the best people I know are Trekkies. Amen? There it is. Yes. So so I want to hear those kind of woos and amens when Paul's up here and we're worshiping the Lord here this morning. But I appreciate the love for Star Trek. Very much. I think our modern myths are this. Technology and science, humanism, and consumerism. Those are, there's more than that, I'm sure, but these are the, the, the ones that I see the most. You know, I thank God for human ingenuity. This morning I used a computer and a coffee pot, and I love both of them very, very much. Right? So I, 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 I have all of the appreciation for that. And yet, as I hear people talk about science and technology, it begins to frighten me because of the reverence that I hear. As I listen to NPR and these people talk about, well, we're going to bring scientists on here to tell us something new. And, and it's almost as if we're speaking about a reverent thing, this, this, this holy object, this thing that stands by itself and can, can answer those, those big questions in our lives. You know, we utilize technology for a lot of things. We utilize it to physically alter a man and make it a woman. We utilize it to spy on people and make new, bigger, better killing machines. We use it to inform people. And we use it to give 10-year-olds pornography, which is the average age, those of you who have children in that age group. It was true of me, so it's true of your kids, I'm sure. We use it for evil and we use it for good and it has sort of this weird neutrality to it even as we offer it so much of our time i'm guilty of this so much of our attention so much of our connectivity as we say it's interesting to read genesis 1 28 where we read be fruitful and multiply and have this have this connection with the world i hadn't is there a bomb that's about to go off over here what is happening Okay, it was, started, it was actually starting to freak me out a little. So talking about technology things, beep, 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 beep. I've seen this movie, it doesn't end well. Don't cut the red wire. <laughs> I had an African friend who, who told me how weird he thought it was that we never put our feet in the grass. He said, you go from your house and then you put on your socks and your shoes and you go on to cement and then you go home again and you never put your feet in the grass. And he just found this to be the most bizarre thing. I thought it was weird. He's walking around barefoot all the time. But, you know, teach his own. 
It's interesting, though, that we, that we have this disconnected life to the creation around us. This thing that God placed us in, this garden, he said, and go have fun in it. And instead, we sort of isolate and cubicle ourselves. We should probably break free of that. You know, we value technology, we marvel at it, and yet we notice this repeated line, or I, you know, I notice this, this absence within this story of what technology did God use to create the world? It says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and there was. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered into one place, and it was. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it was so by the power of his word. He needs no mechanism. Of his own being, he creates. Out of his own power, out of his own existence, out of his own ontological being, he creates life and meaning and purpose and hope. This, to me, I think is best captured by the great Captain Sheridan of the Babylon space station, Babylon 5. God was there first, and he didn't need fusion batteries and a solar reactor to do it. Technology is great in so much as it allows human betterment, but we never ask the question of what does betterment look like? Praise God for larger cell phone screens, sure, but are all technological betterments better? And who makes that decision? Where does that come from? All kinds of questions. Second, I think, um, is the rise of humanism. I don't need to spend a lot of time talking about this other than to say that this is the prevailing worldview of our educational systems. It is written into so much. And humanism at its core is to say that we don't need God to decide right from wrong. We as humans can see what is human flourishing and we can pursue that as its own end, as its own goal. And the problem, of course, is you can't. We tried this with eugenics. And you know what it created? Adolf Hitler in World War II. That's what it did. And yet this perspective is written into the DNA of the U.S. education system. Do we? And Jeremy Bentham, who are the founders of education in the United States, were both atheists whose goal was to train children to be atheists. The people that we read in school, not just counting Darwin, of course, and his, 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 uh, his influence in life, but also Shakespeare, Hawthorne, Twain, Hemingway, and Steinbeck, all of whom were at best deists, probably all atheists, and all of them, completely anti-biblical, anti-biblical. And so we have these worldviews competing and they're being poured into our kids. And do we think that once we get, what we get on the other side isn't going to be that worldview? No, you are in competition as parents, as grandparents, as people who just love kids and want to see them know Jesus. We are in competition against worldviews, lies, stories, myths that are being told to them. And if we don't tell them Genesis 1 over, 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 and over again, we are in trouble. And this is why we have Sunday school at 9 a.m. Bring your kids. Bring your grandkids. Pull kids off. Don't pull kids off the street. That <laughs> Went too far there. Don't do that. Invite kids. That would be good. Invite kids. We need to have them here. You need to have them here for Sunday school. You need to have them here for Wednesday night. You need to have them here for VBS. We need to pump this into their lives. You need to have family devotions. You need to read them the Ten Commandments. If you're not telling them the story that will shape their minds, someone else, guaranteed, someone else is. Someone else is. It's up to us 
as a church to love our kids enough to pump God into them. Thirdly, finally, consumerism. We are in a world of discontent. Every time we see a commercial, it is manufacturing jealousy and lust, and it is manufacturing for me to be discontent with my TV, my car, or my wife. Never discontent with her, I suppose. That's what it's doing. That's what they're doing. And, 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 and I understand that because that's the gears of capitalism, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that all of that is bad. It's not bad to have a new car or... You have to be careful with that. A new car, a new TV. Um. <laughs> but, you know, I think, of, I think of consumerism as consuming our whole lives. Not just our want of more, but how busy y'all are. How hard it is to get Christians together as somebody whose job is in part to get Christians together. Man, it is tough to get you guys together. It's tough to get people together because our lives are so crammed, packed, full of all kinds of things that a Sunday morning or a Sunday night even, a Sunday dedicated to God is impossible for our lives. Reading in Genesis chapter 2, you know, I notice this. We don't pay attention to this uh, very much anymore, and I'm not sure what shifted and why that changed. Um, This was uh, before my time, so I guess that would be probably why. But um, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And so God then blessed, which which reminds me that God, this ties with what he said earlier, right? He blessed us. There are two things he blesses. He blesses humankind. He says, go be fruitful and multiply. And then he blesses the Sabbath. And he made it holy, which means set apart. He set it aside. Because on that day, God rested. On that day, God set it aside from the work that he had done in all of creation. And I I know that this is tough because this is an Old Testament law and it's written into the DNA of the people of Israel. But it was such good news because to the ancient world, if you were rich, you got to, rich people always can take vacations, right? But if you're a working class person or you're poor, you have to work every single day. But in Israel, uh, for one whole day, everything stopped. The, the gears of progress ground to a halt. As rich and poor, young and old, made, male and female, slave and free, a Jew and person who's just a migrant worker, animals. And the Bible is clear to point out over and over again, the land itself, everything in this area had a day off. What did they do with that day? They remembered God who had created them. And they worshipped God who sustained them. And they spent time with their their friends and their family, valuing them. And I think it is tragic that we don't have any sense of Sabbath anymore. Not that it becomes a legal thing where you can only travel so far on on Sunday. But just to say that there's a day dedicated to God What does it say to our friends, our neighbors, that we have a hard time finding priority to spend an hour and a half together on a Sunday morning? What does it say to them about the priority of Christ in our lives? What does it tell our kids when the last thing that we're willing to give up is our hobby, but the first thing we're willing to give up is gathering for Wednesday night services? What does it tell our non-Christian friends, the people we want to witness to when the week was rough and so we sleep in. I think it tells them that this 
thing that we do here is a hobby. And I'm interested in it, and I like it, but when I'm busy, it can be set aside. And what Genesis does, I think, for our culture today, which is just go, 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 go. Consume, consume, consume. Buy bigger, buy more, buy new. What Sabbath does is it makes us stop. Take a breath. Remember God. Worship him. Spend time with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Worship together and enjoy one another and spend time in this garden that God has made. And so when I read Genesis 1, what I see alive in it, what I see alive in it is a hymn of resistance, a song that says, no matter what age you live in, this is telling a different story. What's interesting about the old world and the new world is the old world said you're nothing but a slave. You're a slave to the gods. And what the new world says, what we have today, is not that you're a slave to a god, but you're a slave to passions. You're a slave to uh, what I want. You're a slave to your schedule. What are you a slave to here today? Because Genesis 1 says you are free. You are the creation in the image of God. And as you walk out today and you see the sun and the moon and the trees and the stars, as you see the animals, as you see the plants, as you eat the food that God has provided you, all of that comes from his own divine love. Do you worship him for it? Do you thank him for it? Do you enjoy it? Sometimes Christians, we're just so miserable. And I read Genesis 1 and I think, man, we ought to be celebrating. We aren't cogs in a, divine, in a divine wheel, and we're not cogs in a technological, science-driven, human, no end in sight. We're just going to develop and develop until we develop ourselves into nuclear chaos. We're none of those things. We are people who are placed here for a purpose. We are people loved and preserved and made by God himself. And this good news should shape everything about who we are. We should be people overjoyed because we know who we are. We know where we come from. And best of all, we know where we are going. That God has planned something greater than everything that we see. And I tell the story, whenever I'm at a funeral, I tell it like this. I say, if you can think of the best day of your life, the most perfect and wonderful day, the day that you'd want to relive over and over, your groundhog day, if you could live that, Take that, multiply it by a billion, and and then multiply it by eternity, and that is what God has planned for you. So be full of joy. Be full of praise. And what I want you to do this week, this is your homework for the week. I want you to open Genesis 1. I want you to read it. And I want you to share with me either via Facebook on our our, uh, Facebook page or maybe Sunday when you come back in. I want you to share with me how you see Genesis 1 teaching you to resist the temptations that we have in culture. How you see Genesis 1 reshaping the way that you think. Experience Genesis 1. Touch God's creation this week. Be full of joy and full of love and full of peace and full of hope. For great is his faithfulness. Amen? As we come to a conclusion, I invite you to stand as we sing this song.